page 926, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've provided one for you. I've mentioned this in the past. I want to remind you, if you don't have a Bible at home, take ours. It's fine. I'm, I'm letting you know that it's not, letting you know now it's not stealing. We want you to have a Bible, so please do that. Um, uh, we're in Acts 17, and reflecting this week on God's providence, it's interesting that uh, this corresponds in many ways to... The sermon series we just began last week, which is a 10-part series in Genesis 1 through 3, solid foundations for a crumbling culture, looking at what it means to have God as a creator, for example, um, and what it means to be made in his image and all these things. And tonight we're looking at uh, God, the mighty maker, the distinction between creator and creature. There's a lot of parallels with that in our passage today. We are going to deal with this chapter or this section in its entirety But in one sense, I want to let you know that this is really only part one, and if you want to get the whole message, come tonight for part two, um, as we continue to unpack the themes of understanding and knowing who God is, important things for us to know, to be reminded of, and to equip us for as we engage with a world that increasingly is forgetting these things or rejecting them. Acts 17, uh, perhaps the most famous passage, or one of the most famous in the book of Acts And that is Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. We'll begin in verse 16 uh, through the conclusion of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, the scene of Paul at the Areopagus in Athens is, as I mentioned, one of the most well-known in the scriptures or in the book of Acts. Um, scholar F.F. F. Bruce stated that the ten verses that make up Paul's um, sort of sermon, it's really more of like a speech, have occasioned more commentary than any other portion of the book. And I'm told from friends who were there recently that if you were to go to the Areopagus today, there is a gigantic plaque uh, there that has these ten verses in Greek, uh, the speech that Paul made there at the Areopagus, uh, so that even today people see how significant that was. But if we picture Paul standing uh, before this council of elders, that's, that's who, who gathered at the Areopagus, sort of leaders in Athens, uh, uh, giving a, um, a defense uh, for the Christian faith at this, this famous outro- uh, rock outcropping in Athens, Uh, where it was believed that many mythical trials had taken place, including Ares, or also known as Mars, uh, being charged with the murder of one of Poseidon's sons. That's why it's also called Mars Hill, because it was the place where the the Greek god Ares, or known as the Roman god Mars, was tried. Um, if If we think about Paul being there and all this happening, it can seem a little foreign to us. Um... A little mythical itself, perhaps. A little unreal, ancient, or maybe outdated. After all, what occasioned Paul's speech was an altar dedicated to the unknown God. That definitely sounds like a bygone era of paganism that our sophisticated modern society has done away with. Or does it? It was only in 2009 that then-president-elect Barack Obama invited Episcopalian priest Gene Robinson to open his inauguration ceremony in prayer. And Robinson said later, um, when he was being interviewed, that he went through and he read former inauguration prayers to kind of prepare himself. And he said he was dismayed. This is an Episcopalian priest coming from the Anglican Church. That's what they call it in America, the Episcopalians. He said he was distressed at how exclusively Christian these prayers were. He said he was horrified, in fact, that they were aggressively Christian. And so this is how he began his prayer. O God of our many understandings. Do you know what that sounds a lot like to me? To the unknown God. So let's be clear about something. We live in a world that is just as pagan, if not more so, than the Athens of Paul's day. And so if you, ever meet, if you ever meet somebody who says they're not religious, don't believe them. Maybe you're sitting here today. You're here for one reason or another, but you think you're not religious. Well, don't be deluded. We are all religious. While Christianity as an institutionalized religion may be waning in popularity, religious practices have not. Consider some of these statistics. As recently as 2019, 25% of the American adult population 
claim to have no religious affiliation. They're not necessarily atheists. They're not necessarily agnostics. They would call themselves nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, right? They just don't have any affiliation. But of that 25%, which when you uh, narrow the demographic just to those born after 1990, millennials, that number jumps to 40%. So 40% of millennials, 25% of the population says no religious affiliation. And yet of that number, 46% say they talk to God. 13% say he talks back. 47% believe in the presence of spiritual energy. 40% believe in psychics. 38% believe in reincarnation. So this might not be Christian, but it's certainly not secular. This is very religious. In his book, Seculosity, David Zoll explains it like this. He says, we, as a society, we are never not, or we're seldom not in church. He says, to know what I mean by that, it requires a more expansive view of religion. For instance, as sanctuaries in Europe have emptied, folkloric beliefs have thrived. A majority of Icelanders claim to believe in hidden creatures like elves, And about a third of Australians believe in lucky charms, not the cereal, he says. Half of Sweden gives credence to mental telepathy. And according to App Store downloads, millennials in the United States are increasingly enamored of astrology. So with that all being said, keeping that in mind, there perhaps is no better text for us to study and meditate upon as we consider what it means uh, to to engage in such a society as, as that we live in. Um, no better text than Acts 17. What does it look like to speak to the rampant paganism? They might not use that word. In fact, I'm sure people would not use that word, but that's what it is. How do we speak to the rampant paganism all around us? And so I want us to see that we're going to learn in this section, the latter half of chapter 17, how to properly assess the idolatry that is around us and then Even more importantly, how to properly address the ignorance of our lost world in a convincing and a compelling way. So notice with me first, Paul assesses the idolatry in Athens. That's the first thing. He assesses it. If you look at verse 16, according to Luke, it would seem like it doesn't take a whole lot to assess. What does verse 16 say? The city was full of idols. The ancients used to say that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man. They had idols erected everywhere. Uh, The primary manifestation of idolatrous practice or philosophy was represented through these two um, schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. What does that mean? Who were they? Stick with me. This is relevant. The Epicureans, um, they they followed Epicurus, uh, and they, they believed that the chief goal in life was to attain maximum pleasure and minimal pain. Uh, so they were materialists. They denied that there was any sort of transcendent realm. They didn't think there was life after death, for example. So their mantra, in effect, was this. This life is all there is, so live it up. Live it up. If it feels good, do it. That's the Epicureans. Then there were the Stoics. They were determinists. They were fatalists. They were sort of panentheistic. That They did believe in God, but God was in all things, and they believe that the good life was found by situating yourself, by, be, by becoming one with this God-infused world in which you lived. You had to find your proper place in the circle of life, so to speak. So 
Do either of these sound familiar? Well, of course they should. Epicureans, whose slogan was, if it feels good, do it, they are alive and well in the self-actualizing, self-authorizing, expressive individualism society that we live in, this society of secularism, human, uh, humanist secularists. YOLO. You only live once. The kids know that one, right? YOLO. You older folks, take a note. YOLO. You only live once. That's... That is a creed that comes straight from the Epicurean way of thinking. Now, Stoics, all about becoming one with the world, they're found through New Age practices that infiltrate almost every area of our society. You find it in the yoga class offered at your local YMCA. Do you remember what the C stood for? Or holistic health crazes that have taken over Instagram, even the way that people say that you should declutter your home. Now, am I saying there's anything wrong with, with, with uh, being healthy, with doing stretches, with having a, a good diet, or organizing um, your home? Is style a bad thing? No, of course not. It's about the way these things are, are dressed up and packaged to us, and they're packaged to us as though this is what will give your life meaning. This is what will give you that peace you are after. People say, or at least one person famously said, that even organizing your home, it will spark joy. That's, that's a slogan, not of secularism, but, but of a religion, right? This idea that this will give me what I need to be happy. And so our secular world while it's rejected anything that is sacred, hasn't actually gotten rid of religion. Rather, it's just sacralized the secular. Now it worships the secular. And the scary thing is that that can become so pervasive that we don't even recognize it half the time. And we can be caught up in it, you know, unwittingly, often. One wonders if Athens was in the back of Paul's mind as he penned the opening of Romans. Turn there with me, Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look in more depth to this tonight in part two. Look forward to doing that with you this evening. But I want to highlight two verses in particular, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And there's something that Paul says here that's very striking. And Paul says that while people by nature suppress the truth about the God of the Bible, the only true God, there is something that they cannot suppress. And that is the need to worship. So look at Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then we skip to verse 25. And it says, these people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they've worshipped the creature, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Paul says that while we can try to suppress the truth about God, we can never completely silence him. We can try to suppress him. We can try to hold him down, but we can't silence him. He's still there as the maker of all. He's always there. And as creatures made in his image, he's always on our conscience. Nothing we can do ever completely will soothe the conscience that feels the guilt of denying the most real thing in the world. Did you hear that? 
There's nothing that you can do that will soothe the guilty conscience. Guilty for knowing it is denying the most real thing in the universe. Namely, God himself. Nothing we do will soothe the conscience that's guilty of hating the most lovely thing in the universe. This is what Calvin says about the natural man and his institutes. Quote, It is moreover to be observed that though they struggle with their own convictions and would fain not only banish God from their minds, but banish him from heaven also, their stupefaction is never so complete as to secure them from being dragged before the divine tribunal. Translation. Translation. That you can never ignore God to such an extent that you don't feel guilty in life. That you don't know that that you're doing something that's cosmically wrong. And that's why there's something else that Paul sees during his time in Athens. He sees an altar to the unknown God. Why would such an altar exist? Because mankind's stupefaction is never complete as to secure him from being dragged guilty before our maker. And so even with all of the gods that they had, the Athenians thought, well, what if we missed one? What if there's a God up there who's just... You know, he's just seething in anger that we're not worshiping him and he's going to smite us someday. And so, even though we don't know who he is, let's build an altar and we'll say, to the God we forgot. And maybe he won't be so upset with us anymore. They erect this altar to the God we missed. Now, as he assesses the idolatry, it's very important to see how this makes Paul feel. Look again at verse 16 of our text. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's, that's Silas and Timothy to return to him from Berea. While he's waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Uh, the, the word provoked, stirred up. One translation has it like this. His whole soul was revolted at the sight of a city given over to idolatry. Now... We have established that we inhabit, in many ways, a culture that is eerily similar to Paul's. We inhabit almost the same world as Paul. Paganism is all over, all over. Idolatry is everywhere. Here's the question, though. Do we evince the same response as Paul? Does it evoke the same response? Which is to say, do you even care that you live in a world in which pagan worship runs rampant? Does that bother you? Do you care that the world is lost in sin and gives itself over to idolatry? Millions, as you know, came out this past week to pay homage to the spiritual evil of abortion. Let's just be honest about that. Let's not dress it up. That is idol worship. Were you bothered by it? And not just bothered by the way that it, it threatens the, the lives of the unborn. Not just bothered by the way it harms the souls of those who have given in to that ideology. But were you bothered in that it blasphemes your God? Did that bother you more than anything else? That's what provoked Paul. A holy jealousy for honor and glory. For the honor and glory of God. Henry Martin, he was an Anglican mis- uh, missionary in India and Persia back in the um, late 1700s, early 1800s. Once he was a guest for, of a Muslim uh, friend for dinner. And his host described for him a painting that portrayed Jesus bowing down before Muhammad. And 
This is what Martin recounted. He says, I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy, and my host perceived that I was considerably disordered. Kind of like Paul, revolted. And my host asked, what was it that was so offensive? And I told him, listen, friends, listen to this. I told him, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to always be thus dishonored. Is that how you feel? The host continued to press him. He says, why do you feel this way? Well, if anyone plucks out your eyes, I replied, there is no saying why you feel pain. It is feeling. And it is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded myself. Can you live in a world in which Jesus is always thus derided and blasphemed? Now, notice it's Paul's provocation at the sight of such idolatry that stirs him to action. And so notice secondly and finally this morning how he addresses their ignorance. He's moved to begin preaching. He goes to the synagogues, to the marketplace, basically anywhere that will take him to share the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And this new message piques the curiosity of the philosophers such that they invite him to, or maybe we should say they kind of summon him, drag him to, uh, the, the city council meeting at the Areopagus, and they say, tell us about this, this new uh, uh, belief system. We, we, we haven't heard this before. Explain it to us. Give a defense of your views. And Paul uses that altar to the God that we missed, to the God we might have forgotten. He uses that at his, as his point of contact with the Athenians. So look at verse 22 and following. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That's not necessarily a compliment. It's, I, I see that you take your superstitions very seriously. Why? Because I passed along and observed the object of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And now he leans in, or the, this is his introduction to his speech. What therefore you worship as unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And friends, this is what we all need. This is what you need today. If you do not know God in a saving way through Jesus Christ, you need to come to terms with him. You need to acknowledge the God that you ignore. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We all know him. We just ignore him and avoid him. Paul is making known to them the God they think they don't know. And he highlights four things that are essential to know in order to turn in the words of First Thessalonians, to turn to God from idols and serve the living and true God. So four facts I want to highlight about this God. And I, we're going to see that each one of the claims that Paul makes has an implication for us in our response or a takeaway for us. We'll move through these as, as briefly as we can. The first, he made them. That's the first thing. This God you don't know, he made you. He's the creator. Verse 24. This God that you think you don't know is actually the creator of, what's it say? The world and everything in it. Similarly, verse 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So, first fact about the God you don't know, he made you. What's the implication then for that? Well, because he created me, I can't contain him. He's bigger than me, so much bigger than me that I can't contain him. I can't manipulate him. Paul says he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man. 
And so we start here, Paul starts here, because a proper view of God will always maximize God and minimize us. To say that the real God is outside of this world, that will that cut the Stoic philosophers and their view of pantheism down to size. He's not in this world. You can't manipulate him. He isn't in matter. He made matter. You can't tap into him in that way by becoming one with the world. You know, even major sects of so-called Christianity have bought into this, this ideology and have lost the distinction uh, of God being the creator. Think of Pastor Norman Vincent Peale and his famous book, The Power of Positive Thinking, still a bestseller decades later. Here's a quote. When you expect the best, you release a magnetic force in your mind, which, by the law of attraction, tends to bring the best to you. No, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Verse 26, Paul says, It is God, not man or man's positive thinking, who has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of man's dwelling place. God's the one who determines our lot in life, not your thinking. Positive or otherwise. God can't be contained in temples that we make. He isn't directed by our thoughts. He is the maker over and above everything. And Paul starts here because if it is true that God is big and God is glorious, then the only proper posture that we must take as we encounter him is on our knees, bowing before him. So that's the first thing. God made them. The second thing Paul says is he keeps them. He tells the Athenians that God sustains them. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Since God sustains us, that means we need him. He does not need us. That's a key difference between God and idols. God is self-sustaining. God is self-existent. God is independent. He does not need us. Idols, on the other hand, live off of us, which is precisely what makes them worthless. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Habakkuk saying, that's just, let's be honest, stupid. That's just stupid. John Stott writes, any attempt to tame or to domesticate God, to reduce him to the level of a household pet dependent on us for food and shelter, is again a ridiculous reversal of roles. We depend on God. He does not depend on us. So, that's the second point. What's the implication from that truth? What's the upshot? What's the implication of the fact that God not only makes us, but he sustains us and he doesn't need us? Here it is, and it's good news. It means you can relax. You can take a deep breath and relax. Because idolatry is an exhaustive, uh, demanding, anxiety-inducing kind of worship. If we're not pouring time and attention into our idols, they die. And moreover, when our idols die, whom we have put all our hopes and dreams and our, 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 our desires for fulfillment and satisfaction, when our idols die, guess what? What point do I have to live? Why should I keep going? Oh, this is so tempting for us. And we see it in in a variety of different ways. And maybe you've experienced, maybe you're going through it right now. 
For example, what happens when your security is in your career and you come to work one day to find you've been laid off? What if our fulfillment is in our marriage and we come home to find there are divorce papers on the counter waiting for us? What if our satisfaction is in, well, is in drugs and we can't get our fix? In any of these instances, when we've made something in life an idol and then it can't fulfill us, what do we feel like? We feel like we might as well die. Why keep living? When our idols die, we die. But friends, when you embrace the truth that the only God worth believing in is a God that doesn't actually need you, that takes the pressure off of you. Life goes on because he is reigning. And that's a good thing. And Paul quotes a pagan poet to make this point. You see that there? He says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's this triad used to prove that mankind is dependent upon God in every area of life. The original quote was referring to Zeus. Oh, what a brilliant apologist Paul was. He's saying that this poet, perhaps Epimenides, the 6th century, he says he was so close to being right, as was Aratus, who Paul quotes next. We are all his offspring. Again, that's referring to Zeus. But what's Paul doing here? He's contextualizing the message of the Bible, and he's saying to these Athenians, your own poets have said very true things. They've just attributed it to the very wrong people, the very wrong things, these idols, these gods. But the reason that they can say such things is because God is very knowable. There is no reason for you to say there's an unknown God. In fact, almost by reason you have come to find him. You've come so close to reaching out and to grasping him. He is not far off, verse 27 says. He's sustaining all of life. You can't escape him and you can know him. We might call what Paul is doing here pre-evangelism. While earlier he'd been preaching of Jesus and the resurrection, you know, here he's less explicit. He's tilling the, the soil of the hearts of these people to receive the gospel message, God's truth. This unknown God has, has made them, he keeps them. And then there's a third thing he says. This is really profound. He says, he's made you, he keeps you, and he wants you. Wow, look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is astounding. Think about this for five seconds, what God is saying here. Greece, but Athens in particular, known the world over for centuries and centuries for their pagan worship. And yet this God who had been daily defiled and blasphemed and mocked through that pagan worship now says to them, I don't want retribution. I want repentance. I want you to come back to me. I want you to come back to your maker. I want you to come back to your sustainer. He's been patient with them so long. Why? So that they would have the opportunity at this moment to hear the gospel and to believe. That's why he hadn't judged them in the past. That's why he hadn't sent a lightning bolt from heaven. That's more of a Zeus thing anyway, right? He's been patient with them. Even though the pagans of Paul's day and the pagans of today are rebels and runaways, being made in God's image, God has a fatherly desire that they would come back to him. And if it's true we are his offspring, of course he wants us to find our way back. 
So what's the upshot then? What's the implication of this third truth that he wants us? So what's that mean for us? Friends, I want to tell you so clearly today. Pay attention. Wake up. Listen to this. This is so important. If it's true God wants you, there is no reason for you not to repent. We have a whole long list that we keep in the back of our minds for reasons why God might not want me to come to him. You know, we, we list our sins, we list our failings, and we think, yeah, maybe he doesn't actually want me. No, learn from what Paul is saying right here. He desires all to repent. Peter talks about that too, right? He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach everlasting life. He wants you, and the implication is if he wants you, there is no reason. You have no excuse not to run to him because he's not going to meet you with a frown, but with open arms and a smile because of Jesus Christ. He's paid it all for you. All those sins, that laundry list that you have, reasons why you might not come to God, Jesus has dealt with it all. You have a clean slate. And so you come to God. Romans 2, 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not reeling that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Friends, when pop- properly understood, God's kindness, his love, and his mercy does not inspire further sinning, but faster repentance. Come to him. Come to him today. Last thing. The truth of God's mercy is matched by Paul with an equally true reality, and that is God's judgment. You see that in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. So the final way Paul addresses the ignorance of the Athenian people, this unknown God, he says, actually has made you, he keeps you, he wants you, and he's warning you right now. He warns them. He warns them that while he has been patient, his patience will not last forever. Judgment is coming. And how do we know that judgment is coming? Easter Sunday tells us judgment is coming. Easter puts the world on notice. That's what Paul says. He's assured us of this judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. What's the connection there? How does Easter assure us of a judgment day? Well, in two ways, at least. For one, it assures us that the judge is alive and well. Did you notice what Paul says? The times of ignorance are verse 31. He says, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Who is that man? Jesus tells us himself in John 5 that God has given me authority to execute judgment because I am the son of man. Okay? Well, that authority is not going to do a whole lot of good if he's in a grave decaying. He's dead. But since the judge was raised on Easter Day, Judgment Day will come. That's one way Easter puts the world on notice. But there's a second thing. And the second thing is that Easter itself is a picture of Judgment, or, or of judgment Day even. What, what happens at Easter? Why is Jesus raised? Because God has judged him. He has judged his son to be righteous. And being righteous... He's not deserving of the penalty of death, or the, the penalty of sin, which is death. No, this perfect one, this righteous one, he does not belong in the grave. And so the resurrection is God's judgment 
upon, or we can say his vindication of the ministry, the life, the perfections of his son. And so in the end, friends, God will judge you either by raising you from the grave or leaving you to rot there in the, in the pains of hell forever. You are raised through the righteousness of Christ, which is applied to you by faith, or you are left in the grave because of your re- rejection of the righteousness of Christ. He's warning you of this now. So what's the upshot? What's the implication? Since God is warning you, what does that mean? Brothers and sisters, very soberly I tell you today, it means you have a decision to make right now. Right now. Because judgment is coming. And there are only one of two choices in this decision that you have to make. Only one of two answers you can give. Either you reject him or you receive him. There are only two answers given to to Paul after his speech. Did you note them? Verse 32, some mocked. Verse 34, some men joined and believed. And you say, well, pastor, no, no, no. There's a third response, a middle response. There were people who were interested. Verse 32, right? People said, we will hear you again about this. And I would posit to you, no, that's not interest. Because that's what you say to to the... uh, salesman who calls you about the new offer that um, uh, Spectrum has. You know, we have a new streaming service, and, and we, wanna, we want you to know you can get it 10 days free, and then you can cancel at any time. Or, or a canvasser, you know, approaches you in the parking lot at Meijer or something as you're trying to get home. And, and what do we say? We say, oh, that's great. That's neat. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm a little busy right now, but maybe some other time. Translation, don't ever bother me with this again. That's what these people are saying to Paul. They're a little bit more polite about it, but make no mistake, mistake there are two, two responses, rejection or reception. Only one of two ways to respond to the God who has made you, who keeps you, who wants you, and who is warning you that judgment will come. Only one of two ways you can respond, and you must respond today. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would... Stir our hearts as you stirred the heart of the Apostle Paul to be so distressed by the idolatry that we see around us that we would be willing to stand up, uh, even when it's unpopular, to, to denounce it. And we would stand up and, and give a winsome apologetic for the unknown God, the God that is repressed and, and the God who is rejected for the creature instead and We see these things all around us, Lord. We see it even in our own lives. Forgive us for that and the ways in which we doubt this, God, and we put our hopes and our our dreams in, in false idols that will fail us. We do pray, though, that we would take to heart this message of the Apostle Paul, that this unknown God can be known. Not only can he be known, but he wants us to know him, and he is ready to receive us because of Christ even today. Would we receive him then? At this moment, for some of us, maybe it is the hundredth time, the upteenth time, but for some, maybe the very first time. Melt hard hearts, grant the repentance that leads to life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.